Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hi guys, I am Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me as we kick off a brand new week. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Please follow my Instagram account for news about me and this podcast at Monica Crowley underscore and my Twitter account at Monica Crowley. You can also send me an email about this podcast at Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. I'm getting a ton of your emails. So thank you. And I'm going to read uh, a lot of them toward the end of this show. So if you send me one, yours might get on the air. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Also, I should mention that so many of you are emailing me that you want me to cover election integrity and voter fraud and the 2020 election. Well, on Wednesday this week, we are going to do exactly that with a very special guest. Uh, We're going to spend a good deal of time taking apart what happened, particularly in certain swing states in 2020 and how the election was rigged. So you're not going to want to miss this. This is Wednesday this week on the Monica Crowley podcast. Uh, Today, I want to deal with a number of things, including the latest on our absurdist vice president, and also how the red states are crushing the blue states economically. I've got a brand new op-ed today in Newsweek. Uh, It's posted on Newsweek.com, but I've also posted it on my Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and I've also tweeted it out. So please go check it out. But this is going to be a critical thing going into the November elections. In addition to all of the other issues coming at us, all of the Biden catastrophes, the difference between how the red states are performing economically 
and how the blue states are performing economically, that is going to be a huge factor going into not just November, but also the 2024 election. I wrote about it for Newsweek, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, the Monica memo, and I did not intend to start with this story today, but it's coming across the wire, and it is so outrageous that we've got to deal with it at the top. According to the New York Post and other outlets who are reporting this, taxpayers, that would be you and me, are shelling out $30,000 a month so that the Secret Service can rent an estate in Malibu, Malibu, California, right on the ocean. It's very, very she-she celebrity uh, area. Taxpayers are shelling out 30K a month so the Secret Service can rent an estate in Malibu to protect Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden hanging out in Malibu uh, with, I guess, his current wife. Uh, And he's got a, a spectacular estate. I mean, I can't afford an estate in Malibu, but Hunter Biden can because he's been taking money hand over fist from China, Russia, Ukraine, and God knows who else. So he's able to live the lifestyle of the rich and famous on the beach in Malibu. And we are now forking out 30K a month to protect him because the Secret Service needs to be close to him in order to protect him. So they've got to rent the house next door. Hunter is living in a, quote, resort-style home with enchanting panoramic views of the Pacific Ocean. Now, the Secret Service is trying to say that this is the cost of doing business for the agency, uh, since Hunter Biden, like other presidential family members, is entitled to round-the-clock security. Okay, He's the son of the president. He's entitled to it. But the amount of money that we are paying for the corrupt and highly blackmailable Hunter Biden to be protected is insane. Secret Service says this isn't new. The service has to do this, you know, for children of sitting presidents, and we've done this with past administrations. And unfortunately, right now, the housing market is so hot that it's driven up the prices substantially. Here's what the actual uh, real estate listing has to say about this home. It is resort style. It has four bedrooms, three bathrooms with an open floor plan. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so psyched that they've got an open floor plan. Vaulted ceilings and a chef's kitchen. The mansion is located on nearly an acre atop a hill in Malibu. It features a spacious park-like yard complete with a pool, a spa, and a built-in barbecue. And again, you have those 180-degree panoramic ocean views. Uh, His security detail is, oh, that's Hunter's. That's Hunter's house. The security detail is next door in a Spanish-style estate that has its own, quote, gorgeous ocean views, as well as six bedrooms, six baths, a gym, a tasting room, a built-in barbecue, a pool, and a spa. A spiral staircase in the luxury home leads up a castle-like tower to the master retreat with wet bar. Oh, good. So the Secret Service has a wet bar 
as well. Uh, The home boasts that it is resort-style living at its finest and a perfect retreat for a discerning clientele. A representative for Hunter did not respond to a request for comment from ABC News. The White House referred ABC to the Secret Service, which responded in a statement, quote, due to the need uh, to maintain operational security, the U.S. Secret Service does not comment on the means, methods, or resources used to conduct our protective operations. Um, Okay, so you have the second most blackmailable person on the face of the earth living high on the hog in Malibu in this gorgeous estate overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And the Secret Service has to be in the house next door in order to protect him. And we are paying 30 grand a month for that. How does that make you feel? Well, I can tell you I'm pissed. You know, Hunter should be, well, first of all, Hunter should be in federal prison. That I would not mind my taxpayer dollars going to. I don't mind working hard for the right things. Hunter in federal prison, I wouldn't mind paying for that roof over his head and, uh, and the protective detail there. But the fact that he is living in Malibu, living it up, and I think this is one of several houses that he and the Biden family have, We've got to pay for top-of-the-line housing in Malibu for his Secret Service detail? If he's not going to prison anytime soon, well, then he should be living, I don't know, Detroit, Little Rock, someplace that's cheaper. This really aggravates me. This really, really gets under my skin, the fact we're paying 30 grand a month for his protective detail. It is absolutely just beyond, this is, this is exactly another one of the reasons why the Democrats are just going to get decimated among many, many other reasons. But this kind of thing, this is what the American people can relate to. This is the kind of story that they understand. Just like high gas prices and high food prices, this kind of thing that your hard-earned money is going to pay for for his luxury lifestyle while he is the most corrupt, in, in addition to his father, the most corrupt people on the face of the earth, and you're paying for his protective uh, detail in a luxury environment. You're not living luxury, are you? You're paying through the nose for basic life necessities like gasoline in your car and food on your table. And you might want to work a little harder because now you got to pay for Hunter Biden's uh, Secret Service detail in Malibu, you know, with the panoramic ocean views. <sighs> Let's get straight to the Monica memo. We've got big news coming from around the world. First, Hungary. So over the weekend, Hungary held a national election and the sitting prime minister, Viktor Orban, and his party won a huge, huge victory. And they also won a supermajority in parliament. Of course, the globalists absolutely hate this because Orban is an unapologetic nationalist. Unapologetic, he makes no apologies for being Hungary first. He governs and he campaigned on that, hungry first. And, you know, last week we were talking about Governor DeSantis and how smart he is uh, to have taken a page from the Trump playbook. 
um, in order to have huge success in the state of Florida. Well, in the case of Viktor Orban, there are a couple around the world, too, that have looked to Trump's playbook and done what Trump did. A few, (laughs) very few, but Orban is one of them. So Orban did what Trump did, and he put his country and his citizens first. He's had huge success with this, and on that platform, he just won re-election and this incredible supermajority in a landslide. The people of Hungary love what he is doing, putting them and their national interests first. It's also interesting what Orban, Orban ran against. He ran against the left and globalists. He ran against the leftist media, both at home in Hungary and the international media. He ran against Brussels and the EU's transnational nonsense. He ran directly against George Soros, which is interesting. Soros is a native Hungarian, and Soros put a ton of money into this race in order to defeat Viktor Orban. And Orban just took him on. You know how everybody's afraid of George Soros? Well, Orban took him on in a full frontal way, by name, called him out, ran against Soros and won. And finally, Orban uh, ran against um, getting into or in between the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which is right on their border. He, he's also taken a very hard line on immigration and closed Hungary's borders and said, we can't take refugees from anywhere, frankly, and we're going to take care of Hungarians first. And when it came to Russia and Ukraine, Orban said, not our fight. He was right about that. He remains right about that. And voters rewarded him big time. There is a lesson here for American conservatives. We touched on this last week. Donald Trump showed the way. He did the political blocking for other Republicans. He took all the slings and arrows and pushed through it in order to demonstrate to fellow conservatives, fellow populists, fellow Republicans, that this is the way you do it. You are fearless. You are principled. You fight back. But very few Republicans have taken advantage of that pathway that Trump laid out. Few. We mentioned Governor DeSantis last week. He is probably the most visible, the most prominent one to have actually gone down the path that Trump blazed for every Republican. You know, when he was president, some of them did that. And, and you know, I got to give credit to people like Senator Ted Cruz, who, who is pretty fearless out there as well. So there are some throwing elbows and, and moving ahead. But the other thing that Trump showed was that if the consequences come, the New York Times is coming at you, other media is coming at you, and they're pounding you relentlessly, that you can handle those consequences and keep moving forward. So Governor Santos has really taken Trump up on that and to great success, obviously. But by and large, Republicans have reverted to form. People like Liz Cheney, and there are so many others. They, they have reached immediately back for their comfort zone of American interventionalism. You know, the world's police intervene here, intervene there, whereas Trump created a whole new 
uh, policy in terms of um, not necessarily militarily getting involved in every single fight around the world, that we don't have to be the world's police, that we don't have to intervene. And if America's interests are directly threatened, well, of course we would do that. But Trump showed that there are other tools that you can use. There are economic tools like economic sanctions. You can arm uh, opposition that you agree with and want to support and have them fight their own battles. But you will notice that Republicans have reverted back in, in like every way. They've reverted back to sort of the neocon American interventionism. They've reverted back to being afraid of what the New York Times editorial board might say. Again, exceptions like DeSantis, but for the most part, that's where the party is. They're right back into the old rut. While their voters, us, have moved on a long time ago. We no longer want or support that garbage. We are way past that. Do you ever see, like on television, you'll see a Republican member of Congress or a senator, and the, their whole line of thinking is so old. It's so past due. It's, it's not where the base is. We are so far ahead of where so many of these people are. And I'm not just talking about rhinos. I'm talking about, you know, there there are a lot of very good people in the party, but they're still, they've reverted back to being afraid of saying the truth and of fighting back. And honestly, I, I find that disgraceful when Trump did all of the heavy lifting for all of them and paved the way. So Trump and a few others are ahead of the curve, and that's why they're leading the new right. And that's why one of the many of the reasons why Donald Trump is leading the pack of a potential 2024 race, because he is where we are so far ahead. And then when you look at Viktor Orban um, and you see his victory there, you realize that people in the West are craving that kind of leadership. They want fearless, principled leadership that puts them and their country first. They reject the globalism of the World Economic Forum out of hand. They reject the Schwabies. They're rejecting all of it. They want their national sovereignty. They want to be protected. They want their country to thrive economically, politically, culturally. They want their special national cultures preserved and protected and advanced. That's why Orban won in Hungary. And now you look at the French election and uh, Le Pen is actually giving Macron a real run for his money. Let's see what happens in France. But this kind of global populist movement is on a tear. It is on a tear. And Orban is just the latest example. Think to 2016, June of 2016, I remember I I was watching, it was late at night and the Brexit results were coming in and I'm like lying in bed and I'm tired, but all of a sudden the Brexit results are coming in and guess what? Brexit was winning. Brexit won. And it was at that moment that I knew Donald Trump was going to win the presidency. I knew it because of this trend line happening in the West where us deplorables, us thought criminals, independent thinkers, people who love their country, that we want that representation, we want that leadership. And so Brexit passed against all odds, 
us normal people who are in the UK rose up and said, no EU, no transnational nonsense, no World Economic Forum nonsense. We want our country back and we want our independence back. It was that night when I saw Brexit, I said, Donald Trump's going to win. He's going to win. And now when you look at this Orban, um, and it's always, you know, a little dicey when you're trying to extrapolate something from a foreign country or even a race, a special election here, for example, and projecting too much meaning on it. But I am telling you, the populist movement is alive and well. And I think that the catastrophe of COVID around the world and all of this um, consolidation of power with the globalists and the left, I think it's actually having a huge backlash effect and it is going to whip around in ways that the globalists do not see yet. I, I think that this is going to be huge. I think their moves on COVID were so extreme that and such an overreach that normal people around the world are speaking up, putting their heads above water again and saying, no more, enough. All right, let's take a quick break. We're going to deal with China on the other side of the break. Sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. So I was just saying that I really do believe that the backlash to the last two and a half years of COVID and how it was handled, and we're going to get into China here in a moment, uh, but how it was handled by Western governments and in particular the left in these Western governments is going to create a huge populist tsunami, the likes that we have not seen. Earlier, we were talking about how Brexit was the canary in the coal mine. That vote in June of 2016 indicated it was like a flashing red light that 
that us normal people were really fed up with being put last by our leadership and last in service of this this uh, very dangerous uh, transnational agenda embodied by the globalists at the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab and, and his Schwabies. Um, that was sort of the first indication that the people were on to what is happening. Then, of course, we got Donald Trump, who threw a huge monkey wrench into their grand project, their Great Reset. And so, of course, he needed to be destroyed and taken out um, and continues. Uh, that continues, of course. But now you've got, after two and a half years of COVID, we're in the third year of it now, um, you're going to have, I think, a populist revolt of the kind nobody is anticipating here. And that's why they're probably going to redouble their efforts to steal elections, to rig elections, because they know that the backlash against them and their agenda is going to be overwhelming overwhelming. This brings us to China and what is going on today with China. Now, there's a lot for me to say over the course of this program, not today in particular, but as we go forward. There's a lot for me to say about China. I worked for President Nixon during the last years of his life. I was with him on his last trip to China in the early to mid-1990s. I wrote my PhD dissertation centered on China so I have a depth of background on China, and I am going to bring it to this show all the time because China clearly is our number one adversary. We certainly have others around the world, Iran wanting a nuclear weapon, terrorist organizations. Uh, we've got Russia, which is not our friend. Um, and th- there are other enemies on the scene. But China is the primary one. It is the preeminent one. It is the most important one, and it's the most dangerous one. So as we go through the show, I'm going to talk, you know, extensively about China's economic warfare against the United States and the West, its geopolitical aggression, uh, particularly in the Pacific Rim. It's militarizing all these islands. They're now in striking distance, if they wanted to, uh, to Hawaii. And, you know, we're sitting here not paying attention. Their grotesque human rights violations, the genocide that they've got going against the Uyghurs, and, of course, COVID. And what happened with COVID? You know, I used to talk about COVID as a Chinese bioweapon. Now that we know that the NIH, EcoHealth Alliance, Anthony Fauci, um, and so, ma- so many other American entities were deeply involved in what was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now it's not simply a Chinese bioweapon, it is a Chinese-American bioweapon. They inflicted a global pandemic on the world, which killed millions of people, and still is. And yet the CCP is still straddling the globe like nothing happened. And they're doing that because no one in the West, no one is holding the CCP accountable. To the contrary, the West is bending over backwards for China. Here are the Olympics. Well done, Beijing. Oh, we want to buy so many more things from you. Supply chain crisis, don't worry about it. Here are our top athletes. They love you. Here are our top entertainers. They love you too. We need your market. Please don't take that away. We will do anything for you. 
It's Stockholm syndrome. The West has Stockholm syndrome with the CCP. Stockholm syndrome is when you are uh, kidnapped and you end up relating and sympathizing with your hostage taker. We are being held hostage by the CCP, by Beijing. And we are now Stockholm syndrome because we are begging them, oh, please don't take the market away. Oh, please don't do this. Please. Oh, uh, you inflicted a global pandemic on the world. Oh yeah, we're, you know, we're upset about that, but not too upset. Don't worry. Our weakness is pathetic and it is provocative. The CCP only recognizes strength, just like any bad guy around the world. Putin, the Iranian regime, terrorist organizations, Kim Jong-un, they only recognize and respect strength. So when you've got a weak commander-in-chief, that parlays into a weak United States, or at least perceived that way, and it is provocative. It invites the bad guys to act. The CCP is out there conquering the world and killing millions and imposing a dangerous, freedom-killing social credit system on all of us. And we're out here worried about how many pairs of sneakers we can sell them. We are losing this war. And we have no leadership that wants to fight it, except for Trump. Trump sees the war. Trump was fighting the war, and he was fighting it. He was doing it economically. He was doing it in a whole range of ways. He imposed tariffs. Everybody screamed about that, but those tariffs got the Chinese's attention. And the Chinese then came to the table and and agreed to a phase one trade deal to try to rectify the crazy, out-of-whack trade imbalance that we have and have had for a long time with China. And when it comes to covid Donald Trump wants to force the CCP to pay reparations for sending COVID into the world and forcing the shutdown of the global economy. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. But why is Trump the only one talking about this? Every Republican should be talking about it. Why is he out there alone talking about holding the Chinese accountable for COVID? Why is he swinging out there alone again? Because he's the only one with balls. That's why. He did all the blocking. Nobody except for Ron DeSantis and maybe a few others took him up on it. And so once again, Donald Trump is the only one with balls to hold the CCP accountable for what they have done and continue to do to the world with regard to COVID and other things. And that brings me to the current moment in China. China now has a new COVID outbreak. They've got this insane COVID zero policy, which is absurd when you're dealing with a highly contagious respiratory virus. You can never have COVID zero, but the CCP says we've got COVID zero. So they just locked down Shanghai, a city of 26 million people locked down. I mean, this is, this is another wave of a massive human rights violation for 26 million people. This is not March of 2020 when we had no idea what this virus was or how it was going to behave and we had no vaccines, no therapeutics, no nothing. This is today that they are doing this. 
We also know, and believe me, the CCP well knows, that lockdowns do not work. A couple of weeks ago, Johns Hopkins here released a study showing and proving that the lockdowns had no effect on the spread of the virus, zero. Of course, everybody buried that study, including Johns Hopkins, the institution that actually funded and put out the study. Everybody buried it. Johns Hopkins didn't even put out a press release because, of course, it didn't fit the corrupt Fauci narrative of lockdowns and mandatory vaccinations and mandatory masks. Power and control, baby, that's it. That is it. So it is insane that China is doing this now. But when we come back, I want to share a story with you about the early days of COVID and being in the Trump administration because it fits with exactly what we're talking about here and what is going on on the other side of the world with regard to COVID today. Back in a flash. So China has a new COVID outbreak, and uh, as I mentioned, they just shut down a city of 26 million people, Shanghai, and there are other cities, too, that they're locking down, which is completely insane that they're doing this at this late date when we know about the virus and we have all these medications, and China certainly has all of this. Um, But it's all about power and control, as it's been not just for the CCP, but for left-wing leaders here across the West. And I want to share this story with you today because it really illuminates where we've been in this crisis and where we are and why we need a reckoning on all of it. So in January of 2020, uh, the virus was just making itself known in China, in and around Wuhan. And we started to get reports that uh, the Chinese were locking down cities of, you know, 20, 30, 40 million people over this virus. And and nobody was, in the West, nobody was really paying attention to it. If you think back to that time, it wasn't on our radar at all, really. And so we went uh, to Davos, to the World Economic Forum. And one of these days, I'm going to tell you about that. Um, But we were there, and President Trump came for about a day. But whenever the United States sends a delegation to Davos, the Treasury Secretary leads the U.S. delegation. So my boss, Secretary Mnuchin, was leading the delegation, and I was was right there with him um, and throughout all of the meetings and, and everything that went down over like four or five days at Davos. So I remember being at a dinner that the Wall Street Journal had one of the nights. It was it was probably like the second or third night of Davos. They threw a dinner and it was for top CEOs and CFOs. Secretary Mnuchin was there and I was there. And it was but it was a relatively small group. And I remember Secretary Mnuchin saying at the time, and again this is like January 21st or 22nd of 2020. And I remember him saying to the group, you know, he said, it's quite astonishing to me that we have China shutting down cities of 30 million people. And yet the only thing anybody here wants to talk about, meaning Davos, is climate change. It was all climate change all the time. 
And Mnuchin was one of very, very few at Davos that year, January 2020, who actually raised the fact that there was some crazy virus that nobody had ever seen before taking over China, spreading rapidly, and they were locking down massive amounts of people and huge, huge cities. So he like threw it out there and it brought the conversation to like a dead stop. Everybody just went and went, when <laughs> everybody like put down their fork and looked at him blankly, like he was saying something like he was from Mars, when actually he was the one raising the point that everybody there should have been talking about, but weren't because they were obsessed with climate change. So think back to that time and think back to the fact that once China started locking down, the West began locking down too. Why? Because decision makers saw what was going on in China where the virus originated. They saw China locking down and they thought, well, They must know something about this that we don't. So we should be doing what they're doing. We took our cues from China. Well, the CCP is all about power and control, so of course they lock down. And then the leftists in the West, who are also all about power and control, began to lock down. And then leaders like Boris Johnson in the U.K., And President Trump here at home had no real choice by that point. Imagine if Trump had kept the country open and millions of people started dying. It would have been so over, so over. They wouldn't have had to have done all of the the, uh, mail-in balloting and ballot harvesting and all the stuff that we're going to talk about on Wednesday on this show. All of the, the crazy stuff in order to rig the election. They wouldn't have had to do that because if millions of people got sick and started dying because Trump didn't shut down the country, it would have so have been over. So he had to shut it down. And he has said that that was the toughest decision of his presidency. I remember it well. Being at Treasury, I remember it very well. It was an excruciatingly painful decision. We are not locking down again, although Fauci over the last like two weeks, well, we might have to, uh, hell no, not happening. But China is locking down again now, and that should tell you what this is all about. This is, even at this late date, the fact that they're locking down again, this is about conditioning people to comply getting people to think freedom is selfish, deferring to state authorities like Biden and Fauci and Walensky, and ultimately the CCP, like we did last time. Our lockdowns were basically deferring to what the CCP did. No, no more, not again, never again. We have learned our lesson And us thought criminals are on to all of them. So while we have this going on on the other side of the world, and then we've got the Russia-Ukraine crisis where, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last couple of days, they are really ramping up the propaganda again. They are desperately trying to pull NATO and the United States into this conflict. You had Secretary Blinken out there. You had Hillary Rodham Clinton out there over the last couple of days saying, oh, we've got to double down on the pressure on Russia and all of this, trying to pull us into World War III. They are so desperate that we get in the middle of this. But meanwhile, 
Kamala Harris, our vice president, and I use that term loosely to describe her, um, she was asked about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And America, I want you to meet your vice president. Here she is. America's policy has been and will continue to be focused on the real issue at hand, which is one, the needs of the Ukrainian people, which we will continue to support through humanitarian assistance, through security assistance, but also ensuring that there's going to be serious consequence for Vladimir Putin and Russian aggression as it relates to Ukraine, which is why our policy from the beginning has been about ensuring that there are going to be real costs exacted against Russia in the form of severe sanctions, which we know are having a real impact and an immediate impact, not to mention the the longer-term impact, um, which is about saying there's going to be consequence and accountability when you commit the kinds of um, atrocities that he is committing. And I think the president has been an extraordinary leader. To your point, Joy, I've been to Poland. I was in Romania. I've been to Europe, I think, probably at least three times in the last four months. Uh, I was in Munich, Germany, where I gave a a speech at the Munich Security Conference. I was in France before that, speaking with heads of state about this issue, among many other issues, but most recently about this issue. And I will tell you, in sitting down with prime ministers and presidents, often the first thing they would say to me is thank you to the United States and this administration for bringing us together, for building the coalition, for reinvigorating the relationship between the United States and its NATO allies, reinvigorating reinvigorating the relationship. So that response from Kamala Harris is not new in the sense that she can't even form a coherent sentence. These are the leaders, America, that are driving our country right off the cliff They're the ones that we have invested with dealing with issues like Russia and Ukraine and China on the whole array of issues coming at us. That is who we have in charge. All right, when we come back, I want to deal a little bit with my op-ed today at Newsweek on red states versus blue states, and I will read some of your emails, Podcast at gmail.com. Back in a flash. Welcome back. I just want to touch uh, briefly before I get to your emails here. uh, I want to talk a little bit about my op-ed in today's uh, online edition of Newsweek, which you can find at newsweek.com, but also I have uh, posted it on my Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and it's also posted on my Twitter account at Monica Crowley. So please go check it out there. But I wanted to write about the difference between red states and blue states economically, because this is also going to be a huge issue uh, going into November and 2024. So we keep getting monthly jobs reports, and we get it at the national level, and we also get it at the state level. And what my Newsweek column identifies is that month after month, the red states, the states that are led by Republican governors and Republican state legislatures, have been these incredible engines of economic dynamism. 
Month after month, the red states are outperforming the national economic recovery, and they continue to, to far outstrip their blue state counterparts by a lot. So if you look at the last uh, jobs report for February, once again, states with Republican governors took 15 out of the top 20 spots for jobs recovered since the start of the pandemic. And 17 of the top 20 spots have Republican-led legislatures. In fact, nine Republican states have come out of the pandemic with more jobs than when the pandemic hit. And that includes Arizona, Florida, Georgia. 12 states with Republican-controlled legislatures are now seeing record low unemployment rates. This is exactly why policy matters, guys. Policy matters. We're so focused in this country on personalities and, um, you know, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden both being out to lunch and how we've got this constitutional crisis in front of us because our top leadership is either insane or out of it. But policy is what drives the reality on the ground. And these red states are having this economic comeback in spite of Biden, not because of him. And actually, the blue states are doing a pretty good job of dragging down the national economy, which is already starting to weaken. And we still have the supply chain crisis, the labor crunch. There's a lot of stuff, thanks to Joe Biden and his uh, disastrous economic policies that are going on. Inflation is at its highest point in 40 years. 25% of small businesses, which really drive the U.S. economy, they say that inflation is the, their number one problem. And it's the number one problem, really, I think, for, for everybody. So you've got this hostile business environment that's killed jobs and slowed down our economic recovery. And it's all because of you know blue states and nationally, the blue policies that are huge, huge drag. Meanwhile, in red states, you've got lower taxes, fewer regulatory burdens, no mandates, greater individual liberty. And that's why red states have basically recovered most of their jobs, if not exceeded the number of pre-pandemic jobs that they've got. So it's an incredible success story. And I'm telling you, the American people see the difference in economic vitality between red states like Florida, Arizona, and Texas at the top and blue states like New York, California, Illinois at the very dismal bottom. And I just think that come November, voters are going to make it really clear that they want the red state model for the rest of the country. All right, let's get to your emails now. Remember, the email address is Podcast at gmail. Let's begin with Aubrey, who said, I really loved your first podcast. I can see what Steve Bannon was talking about. I live in Texas, and I really wish you would dive into the lack of attention by the cackling vice president on her lack of action on the border crossings happening in the South. Aubrey, we are going to do that, and we're going to do it endlessly. Uh, So thank you for that, but we are going to cover it. Chris writes, uh, hey, Monica, I just listened to your very first episode of your new podcast. Great job. Overall, the content was solid and your focus was clear. You are such a patriot and have always been a fan. So thank you very much, Chris. Dave writes this. Everything is happening, and it's all by design. I completely agree with you. Uh, I even believe that the opiate opiate crisis is also part of the plan. I could not agree with you more, 
Dave, I think, I think all of the crises that we're seeing, um, definitely part of the plan. Um, let's see here. Karen in California writes, Monica, I followed your career over several decades. I fell in love with you during the Obama administration, uh, where you were always the best and clearest voice of true conservative reason. Whenever the world is falling apart, it's your voice I seek. Love the podcast. Yes, it's all of a piece. Oh, very sweet of you, Karen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, Peter writes, dear Monica, you're the best. So glad you're back. I need my Monica memos. Um, And he writes, well, I appreciate Washington inside baseball. I hope that you will spend some time at the view from 30,000 feet. Well, Peter, that's pretty much all I do is tease out these issues and give you a, a much wider view of what is going on in the world and what's going on in the country and really do the deep dives into what it's really all about. So we do the top line issues, Peter, and then we really dig in. And I tell you what's really going on in the much bigger picture. So thank you, Peter. Barbara writes, I loved you on the McLaughlin group so long ago. Congratulations on your first podcast. You were the best then and continue to be. I will follow you religiously now that you have arrived on your own podcast. Keep up the good work and keep us afoot. Keep us informed. The supposed media isn't. Barbara, amen to that. You're 100% correct. Tim in Pennsylvania writes, Hi, Monica. Listen for years on the radio and the No Spin Zone. Love hearing your new podcast. A refreshing point of view from the happy warrior. Tough times ahead. Again, Tim, yes, that is true, but we are going to forge forward as happy warriors and have success. Janet G writes from, uh, oh, an avid listener from the Republic of Panama. Hi, Janet. Enjoyed your first two shows. Was very saddened when your radio show went off the air and totally thrilled that you're back. Well, Janet, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Let's see. Chelsea writes, I'm already a huge fan of your new podcast after hearing your interview on Bannon's show. Thank you for taking on the fight against the far left. Well, I appreciate that. Chelsea, thank you so much. Oh, here's Fred talking about President Nixon. Fred says, Monica, your recent article in Newsweek on how Nixon advocated for U.S. aid to Russia to prevent the rise of an authoritarian like Putin made me think that his views on China were all wrong. He opened the door to China And now 50 years later, they have become the biggest threat to the West. Did he regret any of his overtures to the communist Chinese? Well, Fred, I am going to cover that on the show because I think it's a really big issue. And I've got very strong thoughts about it. So stay tuned for that, Fred. Thanks. Anita writes, Dear Monica, I saw you on War Room Pandemic with Steve Bannon. A major discovery for me. I now have a job where I can listen to podcasts whenever I want while working. Well, good for you, Anita. That's awesome. So very glad to have found you. Well, I appreciate that, Anita. Thank you. Glad to have you on board. John writes, Primo Premier Podcast. Well done. Your sagacity is needed in this befuddled world. Well, I am very grateful for that. Lori writes, hi, Monica. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to listen to the new podcast. I met you at a book signing in New Jersey and you could not have been nicer. Best of luck. Oh, Lori, very kind. 
Thanks so much. Well, we've got a lot more, and we're going to end it here for the show today, but keep those emails coming. Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. I may read yours on the air. And also, don't forget about my Twitter feed, at Monica Crowley, and on Instagram, at Monica Crowley underscore. I will see you on Wednesday, and don't forget, we're going to dig into the 2020 election with a very special guest, all of the uh, election fraud in certain key swing states and how that election was in fact rigged. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm Monica Crowley. Have a great day and I'll see you next time.